When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. How's it going, Lauren? It's going pretty good, Fitz. How are you? I'm good. You have a story for us today. Will you tell me about how you got to know Quinn? When I moved to Estes Park, Colorado, I lived in a little place called the Guide Shack, and there was a flyer on the wall advertising a talk that Quinn had given about setting the no-speed record a couple of years prior. Um, Pretty much everyone at Estes Park knows that Quinn's a legend, and as soon as I got there, that was what I learned too. Give me a sense of like where you're at in your climbing career. Cause like, I think we all remember that feeling of having a poster up on the wall. I was a noob, <laughs> but not a brand new noob. Like I was, I was a budding trad climber, an aspirational big wall climber at the time. And so learning about, you know, that there was this local climbing ranger named Quinn who had at one point set the no speed record was really, really motivating for me, really inspirational. Do you, do you remember the first time you saw Quinn and like you saw her in person? Yeah, I was working at a coffee shop and I knew who she was because her face was on a poster in the place that I lived, <laughs> but she didn't know who I was. <laughs> um, and you know, when you work at a coffee shop, it's funny because you have to ask everyone their name to write that on a cup, but you're like, I know that you're Quinn Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me the story about the being passed by Quinn in the valley. Oh, yeah. So a year later, I went with a bunch of friends from Estes Park, including Quinn, to Yosemite Valley to go climbing. And we were all camping together, but we were on very different types of missions. (laughs) Because like I said, I was still kind of a noob, just breaking into big wall climbing. And a lot of them were much more experienced than me. And so at some point during our trip there, Quinn had teamed up with our friend Josie to climb seven big walls in seven consecutive days. And while that was going on, I, with one of, a fr- with one of our friends, Phil, was making a multi-day ascent of the Lost Arrow Spire. And so we had this amazing moment of waking up on the wall, having this nice chill morning. It's like morning maybe number two and we're halfway up or something. And I start getting ready to lead out on this pitch that's going to be, for me, a really hard aid pitch. But... Um, all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, 
Quinn and Josie are right up on the ledge with us um, because, of course, they're just like crushing through this route. <laughs> and they just really briefly say hi and keep climbing. And I start leading. And what seems like just not that long later, they're already done and they're repelling the route. And I've like barely moved. Like I haven't even finished leading the pitch. <laughs> but I remember um, them being like, you're doing great. And as they passed me going up and then going down, and I'm like pretty much in exactly the same position. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those things that's, that's the neatest part about our sport is the people that we look up to, we can interact with them. And then maybe even someday if we put enough effort and enough time into it, we actually can rope up or share a skin track or whatever it is. Like, yeah. And did that happen to you with Quinn? Yeah. And so that trip, I pretty much just watched them in awe as I kind of played on a bunch of the Valley's smaller walls. And then I think it was the next season that we all came back to the Valley and I had put in a lot of work that spring, had climbed El Cap for the first time and ended up roping up with Quinn and Josie on a one day ascent on El Cap. And um, I wasn't really on their level or even close to being on their level, but they invited me to come with them anyway. And we had a pretty, pretty special day. What's always struck you about Quinn? You know, like on, on a real personal level, like climbing, no climbing, right? Like what's always sort of stood out to you about Quinn? The first thing is that she's humble. <laughs> so humble that she makes you feel like you could do things that she could do, which is probably not true. <laughs> I've been roped into trying to top rope, you know, 513 cracks because Quinn said she thought I could, but it really... I couldn't, she could, <laughs> but she makes everyone around her feel like they can do amazing things because she can do amazing things. Um, and I feel like the second thing is that Quinn's always trying to have fun. She's got a super playful attitude to everything, whether you're on a big trail run or you're on a big climb and you're doing this kind of heinous endurance mission and you've run out of water and Quinn makes everything fun. Today's story is also about Quinn having a lot of fun on an endurance suffer fest that to most would be quite unattainable, but Quinn is not someone to let barriers get in the way. I'm Fitzgerald Hall. I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. You're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. then you get through this dirt road like on the northern border of the Teton National Park and we stopped and like I was like I have to lay down in this field there was this field of just yellow flowers and I was like I have to stop and roll around in the field of yellow flowers how incredible is this (laughs) this is Quinn Brett last summer she set out to ride the Great Divide mountain bike route a lot of people consider this route to be the birthplace of the sport of bikepacking It starts in Banff, Canada, and extends for 2,800 miles through Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico before ending at the Mexican border. The route takes riders through a wide variety of terrain up and over nearly 150,000 feet of elevation gain. It's different than the Continental Divide Trail because 
you're on bikes. So some sections you share with hikers, but a lot of it is you're just kind of as close to the continental divide you can be on forest service road. Quinn has been an extreme endurance athlete for pretty much her entire adult life. Up until a few years ago, Quinn was both a professional climber and a climbing ranger in Rocky Mountain National Park. Her life revolved around adventure, from putting up first descents in Patagonia and Greenland to running long distances across Zion and the Grand Canyon. Every year in June, the Great Divide route is home to a race called the Tour Divide. Quinn's friend Justin did the Tour Divide a few years ago, and the route had always stuck in her mind as something that was possible, something that might be fun to try someday. It intrigued her the way any giant endurance challenge would, but at the time, she had put mountain biking aside to focus on climbing. And I kind of contemplated on it, like it was in the back of my brain, like maybe I'll start doing some more bigger, longer bike rides. Like Justin and I had done some 50-mile rides before my injury, and... And then after my injury, I asked him, I was like, do you think that ride would go? In October of 2017, Quinn was in a climbing accident in Yosemite National Park. While attempting a speed record on the nose of El Capitan, she took a hundred foot fall. Amazingly, she survived, but the injury to her spinal cord left her paralyzed from the waist down. The first few months of Quinn's recovery were really hard. She spent a month in the ICU in Modesto, where she had been airlifted from Yosemite, and then she moved to Craig Hospital in Denver to start the rehab process. Quinn had to learn how to explore the world in a body that no longer responded to her every request. Everything from driving a car to going to the bathroom to putting on pants required a whole new set of skills. Bound to a wheelchair, the way she moved around the world was different, but her drive to move remained the same. Within a few months, Quinn was back home in Estes Park, Colorado. Her friend Justin held a fundraiser to get her a hand cycle. They knew the hand cycle would be key to getting Quinn out adventuring in the mountains again, but using it was a lot harder than either of them expected. Imagine a recumbent bike, but instead of leaning back, Quinn leaves forward and uses her hands to pedal. Cycling with your arms is really different than cycling with your legs, which typically have much bigger muscles. And also, the hand cycle weighs 50 pounds, not exactly your average road bike. Certainly, when I purchased my hand cycle, I, it, they, it gave me the option of battery, no battery. And I said, oh, no, oh, no, I don't need that. So the first couple of trails I'd go on, I, there were trails that I would be a quick 20-minute run for me. And now it was like 20 minutes to get the first half mile. And it was hard. And now I'm turning around to do just the half mile and going back to the car and not having any arm strength to like hardly get into my car or then take a shower later in the day. And just being so like, I was really Debbie Downer about it. I was like, this hand cycle sucks actually. Like, I don't think this sports for me. I don't want to do this. And then I got over my ego and said, let's get the battery. Other people have it out there and they seem to be doing cool stuff. So I put the battery on and then that's when my mind was blown. Quinn started going on longer and longer bike rides, learning the ins and outs of the hand cycle. As she rode around Rocky Mountain National Park, even up to the boulder field on Long's Peak, an idea she'd stashed away started to creep back in, the tour divide. And because Quinn is someone who loves getting totally worked by a big day outside, someone who needs to always be pushing her limits, she couldn't let it go. 
And then my brain was like, well, that would be a really awesome adventure for like on, on the same wavelength, I guess, of like what I was doing before, like all day adventures back to back to back to back. She started looking at maps, getting information from Justin, and reading trip reports. Quinn calculated that she needed to be able to ride about 100 miles a day. I also needed to figure out like logistically what I was capable of. So I have this bicycle, but I use a battery, e-assist. And so that obviously is very limited in how far they can go. So I was like, let's do the white rim in a day because that's 100 miles. And so I ordered three or four more batteries and I figured out how to put them on my hand cycle. Like I got panniers on the back and I shoved a hand uh, battery in each side of the pannier, uh, 20, it's a 20 pound weight bearing pannier and each battery is nine and a half pounds. Quinn's day on the white rim is a whole story in itself. I'm legitimately trying to catch Quinn and I've seen her tracks. So I know she's ahead. The white rim is a popular mountain biking loop in Canyonlands National Park. And most people ride it as a multi-day loop but ripping, like none of us can keep up. But Quinn did it in under 14 hours. Probably averaging like 11 or 12 or more miles per hour thus far. So now she knew that she could bike 100 miles in a day, but what would it take to string nearly a month of 100 mile days together? You know, the spirit of the tour divide is to be unsupported. Um, but I was like, well, I'm in a wheelchair and you know what, I, this is a huge endeavor. And with spinal cord injury, like if I have any pee or poop accidents or any of that kind of stuff, like, I don't know, I need a trailer with my wheelchair in it, but I also need the ability to charge all those batteries and somebody to at least like come to camp every night and like be on charging duty. So the pre-planning for me was like staring at that map of 2,500 miles and being like, okay. Where's the nearest town every 100 miles or where's the nearest campground every 100 miles? And for me with spinal cord injury, I just didn't know how my body would fare. Like (laughs) my first season in Yosemite Valley, I didn't shower for like the whole month that I was there. The river was just fine. Uh, But with this adventure, I was like, I think that the more I could shower to help mitigate the UTIs or just being clean, that sounds like a good thing. So I'm going to try to do that. Because of Quinn's spinal cord injury, she uses a catheter, which means she's really susceptible to urinary tract infections. But planning all those hotel rooms wasn't easy. So there's like some stretches where every 100 miles, it seems like it's town after town after town for two or three nights. But then there's some stretches that are um, camping after camping after camping for two or three nights. So that was, yeah, I just booked um, hotel rooms on Expedia. Like I had had a freaking Excel sheet. Yeah, I would say I'm a good planner and a good thinker about all the things, but this injury has made me even more so like, cause it's detrimental to my overall well being. Like if I get a pressure sore, like, okay, I'm knee, I'm in a knee, I'm kneeling position for 12 hours a day. Like I, and I can't feel my leg. So, uh, which seems like a, I could just like shrug and think like, hmm, well, it doesn't matter if I can't feel my legs, it doesn't really matter. But instead, like I noticed on the white rim, for instance, I noticed that it was a hundred mile day and like little fine grains of sand would then filter into the bottom of my kneecaps. And I got abrasions on my knees because I was just like bouncing and rubbing all over and I couldn't feel that. So at the end of the day, I had little abrasions and I was like, well, after a hundred miles, that's okay, but you can't do that over and over and over again. As the logistics started to come together, 
Quinn needed to assemble a team. But not just any friend would sign up to bike 2,800 miles with you. My buddy Joe, who I met right after my injury, we met at a Paralympic Nordic skiing event in Breckenridge. And we just hit it off. He's able-bodied human and he was just there to help. And we became friends. And like, I knew that also Joe had done some big adventures. Like he had done a big, long, excessive runs and bike rides and like doing weird, long adventures like this. Um, And also he was familiar with disabled people's bodies and knows that like, sometimes I might pee myself or I might need to piggyback. And that didn't seem to bother him. So I asked him and he was like, I've always wanted to do the tour divide. Yeah. And I was like, perfect, I asked the right human. (laughs) Here's Joe Foster. When Quinn started talking to me about it, I did not think of, oh, well, we'll have to change this because of her injury. We'll have to do this because she's on a hand cycle, we'll have to do this or or X, Y, Z. It was kind of just like, oh, you want to spend a month bikepacking and riding single track? Like, yeah, let's go do it. And I don't know if you've ridden with Quinn before, but she makes a lot of things that are very difficult look very easy. After the break, Quinn and Joe start pedaling south. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Yeah, standing there at the border, of course, like you're standing underneath the sign that says, you know, here's the Canadian custom border. Uh, I don't know, my brain, like, I feel like I put so much effort into the planning in the, in the months prior that I'd already, I'd already, not, I guess, imagined doing it, but was so familiarized with doing it that I was like, okay, here we are. We just have to get through the day here, which I guess for me, that's how like standing at the base of El Cap when you're going to climb it in a day, you're like, okay, we're here. We've looked at every single pitch like over and over and over excessively. Now we just have to climb this first one and then do the next one and the next one, the next one. But you don't think about the next one, next one, next one. You just start, you're just here. You're, you're excited and you've prepared. So it felt like, okay, we're ready. Now let all the random side adventures happen because I'm sure things will hit the fan. (laughs) 
the borders were closed. So we had to start at the border of Canada, which takes away, I think like 400 some miles, um, which was fine in all honesty, because I had only four weeks off of work. So I needed to squeeze this in to that schedule. (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. Quinn and Joe had to stick to a pretty tight schedule because Quinn had to be back at work in four weeks. Still, they started out with an easy day to warm things up. We arrived to Eureka, Montana, which is 30 miles south of the border where we start. And my buddy Jason lives there, who I met at Craig Hospital. And we just are hanging out and playing music and enjoying Montana, like, you know, across the street from him down the road a little ways is like this beautiful turquoise lake. Uh, and so, and it was hot. So it was like the middle of June, end of June. So this heat wave was coming through. So it was quite hot, but we had all this beautiful weather, sunny and beautiful water and trees and company. And we were just in really good spirits. The warm, sunny weather might've been beautiful for swimming in lakes, but it wasn't so great once the team got on their bikes. Quinn and Joe logged at least 100 miles every day after their 30-mile warm-up day. The heat wave continued, and it wasn't exactly conducive to grueling 15-hour stints on a road bike. I do a lot better when it's 60 degrees and there's a little bit of rain than I do when it's 106. And we got about halfway through that first week, and Quinn was full gas you know, 110 mile days, just ripping it every day. And we got to the end of a couple of days of doing that. And I was like, you know, the important thing is not that I finish. If if I finish the, the ride, nobody really cares. I'm just another white dude on a bicycle that has finished this ride. But, you know, tally up the list. But I, I was very committed to seeing her um, finish and do do what she set out to do. And so I came to her and I said, listen, we'll, you know, we can, I'm going to need to either ride slower, which means that I'm not in a position to help. Joe suggested that the team, which also included a videographer and some support crew, take turns riding with Quinn. Joe could ride in the morning when it was cooler, and then he would support while others took turns riding. Uh, And she was gracious enough to be like, no, I, I, I wanted to do this with you. We'll figure it out just like with any endeavor, like if this is a partner endeavor, then we're, we have to work with one another. So what's the rush? Like, are we going to get there an hour earlier or should we stop in this river and actually cool us both down? And which made it make what like was going to make or break the trip for Joe, if we could actually like slow down a little bit and soak in some water and, and hydrate better. Uh, So we just reevaluated. Eventually the heat wave subsided. And Quinn and Joe really started to get in the groove. I think we set the alarm most mornings at like 530. uh, And then we would try to be on the bike between 630 and 8. And we would be on the bikes for like 12 hours. Um, But that's with the river time, the stopping time, the snack time, the random tourist time. By the end of the first week, Quinn and Joe were almost through Idaho. The Tetons were a welcome sight, complete with wildflowers and welcoming strangers. There's trail angels all over, which is another hilarious part of the bike touring is like 
people watch your, like people can sign up on a website and watch us if we have a Garmin on us and they can watch where our little dot is. And they'll be like in Wyoming, we ran into this couple on an ATV and they had like a case of Miller light and they were so excited. Like we're in the middle of the, of the Wyoming basin, like desert, this like tundra landscape shades brushy landscape and they just come rolling up and they owned a ranch like way far away and they're like oh, we just love bringing beer to y'all and just chatting with y'all and i know it's like so amazing I'm like okay we got like a bit more to go today but we'll have a beer with you <laughs> Days turned into weeks, and their bodies adapted to the routine. They were on schedule, spinning out miles through Wyoming and then Colorado. But the biggest challenges often came when they stopped pedaling. The accessibility piece um, was huge, but in a funny way, because Quinn's got her backcountry system dialed. She can camp with the best of them, and... In the woods, it was easy. I mean, you set things up and you go and you're completely alone and you can just do what you need to do. And she had that dialed. And I think it was harder for us to wind up in a city where like, oh, yeah, we have all of these amenities. But how many of those amenities are actually designed for somebody who lives life in a wheelchair? And the answer is not very many of them. By the end of the third week, Quinn and Joe were in their final state, New Mexico. The end was in sight. But to Quinn, it still felt like anything could go wrong. Because my bike has like so many moving parts, like I have this motor and the motor could break or the battery could fail or who the heck knows, like Joe could be fatigued. Like any one of us could have something happen to us. I don't think it was until the very last day or until we were like on the last road like the last 30 miles. And I was like, hey, we're, we're, gonna, we're doing this. It's here. Like, this is it. That is one thing that I do love about endurance sports is that there's so much time. You asked earlier if there was one big section or if there's one day that really stands out. And it's actually quite the opposite, I think. There were a lot of, when I think about it now, I think of these little things, like the little joys of magic that happened everywhere. From tiny red flowers to waves of mosquitoes and friendly strangers, The days weren't effortless, but they were full of joy. On the 25th day of their bike tour, Quinn and Joe rolled into Antelope Wells, New Mexico, 2,400 miles later. I was never over it. Like, this is my jam, and I was like, I don't don't care how much suffering it is. I'd way rather be out here on my bicycle than staring at a computer or just sitting around at home. I slept better than I'd ever slept, like, since before my injury, like I was actually tired all day and my brain wasn't chattering so much. (laughs) And food wise, that was interesting. Like I love bananas and peanut butter before my injury. And like, I haven't craved that at all since. And then on this bike trip, I was like, 
Bananas and peanut butter are back in my brain. After Quinn's accident, her drive to move didn't just go away. But for a while, some of her confidence did. The process of preparing for the Tour Divide wasn't just about booking hotel rooms or figuring out how to charge batteries. It was also about healing. And to be honest, I did, that's, maybe that's what's also really lovely about this bike trip was that I wasn't being stopped every five minutes and asked, asked who I was or what I was doing or what's wrong with me or what the heck this machine is. Then as I started healing more and, re- and regaining my confidence and regaining position in my body, yes, it is different and half of it doesn't work, but the upper half is thankfully still very capable. Yeah, it's just wild to know that that's still an inherent drive in me to just want to go play outside and 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 push, which is funny, like I hate barriers on one end of my life, like in this disabled life, but on the other end of my adventuring life, like barriers are the thing that you want to overcome and they're a challenge. Sitting in a wheelchair, cycling on pavement, that was never going to be enough for Quinn. Of course it's not enough. Like sitting is not who I am. And it's not just sitting in this wheelchair, but the lack of the lack of ability to go over that two inch threshold when a whole mountain was at your it was your canvas before, and now the paved environment is a sometimes unknown and difficult canvas. For those lucky enough to know Quinn, the Tour Divide bike trip did not come as a surprise. They knew she'd continue to make this life her own. Barriers be damned. Quinn's a rocket ship. She is a person who, she's got the end goal in mind, and you can see a little bit, but it is full steam ahead to that end goal. And I think that that has certainly served her well as somebody who has a spinal cord injury. Once she's got in her mind that she is going to accomplish something, you get out of the way. I'm here and I'm living it and I'm a semblance of me again. In a few weeks, Quinn will head to Canada to complete the 400 miles of trail that lie north of the border now that it's open. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Kai Engel, Bradley Carter, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Thanks to Brian Martin for sharing your recordings from the White Rim. This episode was produced by Lauren Delaney Miller with additional production help from Becca Cahal and Courtney Lazars. Illustration by Walker Cahal, graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.